Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. My name is Vincent Kajuma. Welcome to Radio Tambua. And I would like to speak to us today about that command that is tucked at the back of the Bible in the book of Jude, which just has one chapter. And verse 22 of the book of Jude is a command to us that says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. There's a general feeling, a general sense that the church, especially the church in Africa, can be a difficult place for people who are very thoughtful or people who think a lot. And there's at times a general frustration uh, that such people feel in the church and a general frustration that those in the church feel about such people who simply won't get on with the program. So there's oftentimes no thought of asking when I open the Bible and I want to speak to people I am opening up a book that is generally believed to be about 2,700 years old and I'm speaking it to people and I'm saying that God is speaking right now through this old book and some of us will take that for granted as that simply being the Bible, God's living and eternal word but then there are people who will struggle and ask, how do we know that that is the word of God? Why not the Quran? Wouldn't that be the case if I was born a Muslim? Why do I receive these claims and not the claims of Kung Fu Tzu, the leader of Confucianism? And even if you were to claim that the 66 books that we have are the actual word of God, what about the books that the Catholics uh, accept? Why would I reject those? If I was a Roman Catholic, wouldn't I be saying as strongly that those books are the word of God? So there are questions that plague these people's minds, which God is calling us to help them. God is calling even those who are asking such questions to not feel guilty and to ask them and to expect intelligent answers of those questions because that's part of how those people are going to be ministered to if they're going to come to believe the gospel without any significant roadblocks in their hearts or their minds. Now, there are two kinds of people, usually, as I've described, there are those for whom such questions simply never occur in a significant way. Their minds just don't dwell on such things. They find it easy to believe and maybe even hard to doubt once they are settled on something. They simply know it's true, they accept it, it is self-evident, period. But then there are people, maybe even because of their temperaments, who really question and really doubt. And doubts come and go, you know, like guests, even though sometimes the guest of doubt just comes in and sits there and refuses to leave the living room of your mind and follows you even to the bedroom and wants to remain with you there. So how do we serve such people as the church? How do we, how are people like that to be served? Number one, I want to address those who struggle with these questions 
let me tell you three things that are true. Number one, there is nothing wrong with you. Maybe God has made you with an inquisitive mind and you have an intellectually cautious posture. Maybe you have a deeper philosophical appetite and it takes a bit more to simply satisfy you. There is nothing wrong with that. That's how God has shaped you. And there are many Christians like you who have been like that. The Bible is full of stories of Christians who are like that. Church history is full of stories of Christians who are like that. Many Christian apologists are themselves people who have been helped when their questions were answered and they want to help people who are asking the same questions. So there are many people of your stripe within the church. So you are not unique in that sense and, and therefore you're welcome into the church. Number two, I've already mentioned that in a way that you are not alone. So one, there's nothing wrong with you. Two, you are not alone. There are many people who have had the struggles that you do, as I've already said. And then thirdly, and this is very important, your faith can survive your questions. Your faith can survive your questions. God has created a world and that's the world that you have questions about. The things you ask about are things that it is God who did. Uh, the events that puzzle you are the works of God. And if Christianity is true and God is true, then it is impossible for you to ask a question that cannot be answered because the truth can survive any form of questioning. In fact, uh, God has given you the mind that you have and God wants you to know him and Jesus Christ through that very beautiful, relentless, restless mind that he has given to you. Because the more you ask and the more you prove it to be true, the more you find it to be true, the more you're established in it, the more you can boldly speak about it. So the truth does not shut itself out from investigation. So your faith can survive your questions because your faith is true. I already mentioned that many people who have questions for whom it takes a lot to accept things as true can find the church to be a bit harsh towards them. But I want to tell you again that there's a home for you here. Biblical Christianity is aware that it is making claims about reality. And scripture itself is full of examples of people who are thoughtful and who asked questions about the things that they had and who are given intelligent questions for the things that they asked. One of my favorite examples is the book of Acts. In chapter 17, we have Paul, the evangelist, doing missions to two different kinds of people. So at the beginning of chapter 17, Paul meets the Jews who already believe the Old Testament scriptures. They accept them as true. Their problem is that they do not believe that this Jesus, this Galilean, who they saw, who died, and whose body and whereabouts cannot be confirmed right now, is actually risen and is seated in the heavenly places and is the ruler of the whole world. He is the living God. They are struggling to believe that. 
And their biggest reason is that they cannot square that with the Old Testament scriptures as they know it. And so what do they do? They ask questions. What does Paul do? Paul engages with those questions from the scriptures. So in Acts 17, we are told that Paul went into a synagogue of the Jews as was his custom. That's verse 2. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul takes this authority that they recognize as true, and Paul reasons with them, argues with them, seeks to show them. Verse 3 says he was explaining and proving, explaining and proving from the scriptures. So there's an intellectual, honest discussion here so that Paul is explaining why what he's saying is true. They are asking things and he's proving and showing his answer on why the events of the life of Jesus Christ match exactly with the events promised about him in the book of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, and showing them that this Jesus whom he is proclaiming is actually the Christ or the Messiah. So you see, there's an engagement there with these people, and the result of it, verse 4, is that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul. I love that word, they were persuaded. It's describing faith as a persuasion. Faith is not a blind leap where you simply refuse to think and accept what you're told. Faith for these Jews meant persuasion. And then as Paul leaves the synagogues, Paul goes to Athens in Acts 17 still. And while he's in Athens, Athens was a Greek city. You know about the Greeks. You know there were such thoughtful people. These are the descendants of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And they are just thoughtful people. They believe in the logos. They believe in reason. They believe that there's an organizing principle to all knowledge and all truth. And they are devoted to the pursuit of that truth. And so Paul has come and Paul notices that there are idols or objects that have been set up for worship in Athens. And in fact, there's one where they say this is to the unknown God. So basically the Greeks know that there is a, a being who is a supreme being above all. They know that there's a source of things, but they're not clear on who that source of all things actually is so they have opened up the possibility of it being various gods and it perhaps being a god that they don't know so there's a humility about it there that this pagan group has and so paul in verse 22 stands in the middle of the aeropagus uh, that's the mass hill that's the place where people stood and presented any new ideas, any thoughts, any philosophies that they had. Paul stands in the midst of them and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And so Paul begins with the knowledge that they have, an understanding that there is a God, there is an unknowability that they acknowledge about that God. And so Paul stands on that and he continues to say that what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. At least presenting a case to them and saying that if this God made the earth and this God made the heavens, then this living God, this one God who has no God above him, who is the absolute supreme source of all things, he cannot dwell in temples made by man, nor can he be served or given anything by human hands because he is the source of all things. He does not need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul is going to build on this case and he's going to say that this God who you know as Father, I proclaim him to you. He has been generous to you, has been kind to you, has provided for you, but he cannot be worshipped in the kind of forms that you worship him. Does not fit with the God who made heaven and earth. He cannot be formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 19. So he tells them that this God, by you forging him and making him in images that do not suit or do not fit with his nature, you have sinned against him. You have become idolaters. You have worshipped what he is not as though it were him. And he says that. This God now commands people everywhere to repent, that this God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. So Paul is connecting the Lord Jesus to the living God, and he's saying that the Lord Jesus is the man that God has appointed by whom he will judge the living and the dead. Paul is willing to discuss this with them. Now, of course, when they hear about the resurrection from the dead, verse 32, some of them mocked him because they did not think that people could come back to the dead when they were resurrected. Scripture records that as their response. And some say that they want to hear again about this thing that Paul has said. However, God does cause some people to just have their eyes opened to see this and understand. Verse 34 says that some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dinosius the Aeropagite and a woman called Damaris and others with them. So what is happening here is that the kind of evangelism that you see in the book of Acts is not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of evangelism. It is an evangelism that engages with people. And at least the point of the podcast today is just to illustrate that kind of engagement is normal to Christianity. And those who seek it are actually seeking what is biblical Christianity. Among those who already believe there are 
questions that still arise. There's an example in Second Thessalonians where there was a church that had begun to fear that maybe Christ had already returned and they did not know. There were people who began to teach that Christ would return and you wouldn't know it and he has returned already. And the very woke people are, are the ones who are aware and have already gone with him and the rest are left. And Paul writes to them and Paul engages this error that they've been hearing. And Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 from, from verse 3 in response to this, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless one, two, three, four things first happen. So he's again engaging them rather than rebuking them for not remembering what they know. He tells them that, no, guys, it hasn't happened because it can't happen unless one, two, three, four have already happened. So there's that engaging them that he does at a very intellectual mind-to-mind reasonable point. So let us not have a kind of faith that does not allow people to think and to ask why and what and how. Let us not pretend and give answers where we don't know the answer. It is right to say, I don't know, but it is good to know what answers the Bible actually provides and be able to engage people in our thoughtful faith. God calls us to love him with all our hearts, our strengths, our minds. Basically, we love him with all our being. And humans are rational thinking beings. And Christianity is for real humans like that. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.